Hello, and welcome to the CDO Magazine interview series and CDO to CDO podcast. I'm Chris Ner, Chief Digital Officer of Synity, a world leader in enterprise data software, and we're partnering with CDO Magazine, MIT CDO IQ, and the International Society of Chief Data Officers to bring you this series of interviews with thought leaders in data and analytics. Today, it's my sincere pleasure to have as my guest, Binu Verghese, Chief Data and Analytics Officer of the Carrier Corporation. Welcome, Binu. Great to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me, Chris. Absolutely. I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to our discussion. Um, so so let me let me jump right in, and I want to start by going um, a little bit back into history. So you started off your career doing what we all used to call data warehousing, which it sounds kind of quaint and old-fashioned now, although in my experience, it's still a big factor in large enterprises. Can you give us a sense from kind of the evolution, an evolutionary standpoint, data and analytics platforms, what have the major changes been and, and how well have those changes worked to deliver business value as the platforms have evolved from the, you know, kind of old time data warehouse days? Absolutely, Chris. I think, first of all, I, uh, I think, yes, data warehousing today does sound quaint or old fashioned or dated and all of that. But the moment you add the word cloud in front of it, it becomes topical and here and now again, right? Uh, that said, you know, just reflecting back on the different generations of data platforms, uh, if we sort of think back, late 90s are when data warehousing sort of became mainstream. And so at that point, there were two kinds of platforms to build your data warehouses on top of. You could choose to build it on top of regular databases like Oracle and SQL Server, or you could build it on top of purpose-built data warehousing appliances like Teradata, NetEase, Vertica, et cetera. Now, the problem with building it on top of regular databases was that those databases were optimized primarily for transactional workloads and not for data warehousing and analytics kind of workloads. Right? And so inevitably, when data volumes reached a certain stage, uh, there were performance challenges and it would get hard to manage. Right? And then on the other end of the spectrum, if you went with uh, purpose-built data warehousing platforms like Teradata, they would take care of the performance aspect with these. Right? They're all MPP systems. And so theoretically, if you double the nodes on a Teradata system, you've doubled the performance. But then handling the cost part of it was the challenge with that, right? And so a, a Teradata node was typically pulling together compute and storage. And so even if you just wanted to scale storage, you would end up buying more expensive compute as well, right? And, and back in the day, platforms like Teradata didn't quite come cheap, right? So uh, that was a challenge back then. Yeah, that's a that's a good point, and and maybe just to add on that, and it's funny because I I you know we did some research in preparation for this, and I and I, I wanted to actually go back into the history, but I had almost forgotten how bad the performance problems could be, and then you had this sort of not only did you have this cost performance trade off, but then you got into this thing where it was like like there was a gap between operational reporting and data warehousing and like everyone kind of wanted to do some combination of both, but it never really worked very, you know, it, it moved the needle a lot, but it never really met the aspirations. So I, that's that's uh, really interesting to remember. Thank you. 
yeah no great comment and i'm i'm thinking back to those days as well right and then fast forward a few years and then internet became mainstream social media became mainstream e-commerce platforms became mainstream and so there was such an explosion of uh, not just data volumes but also variety of data in terms of semi structured and unstructured data and also the velocity at which the data was getting generated on all of these platforms right and so now the problem to solve moved away from cost and became more of how do you handle the volume velocity and variety of data right and then around that time late 2008 early 2009 is when uh, hadoop and the hadoop ecosystem sort of came into existence right and then the promise of the hadoop ecosystem was solving for the three v's right uh, you had frameworks like mapreduce that could handle large volumes you had uh, uh, because of the schema on read kind of a philosophy you could quickly ingest all kinds of data semi structured structured unstructured onto the hadoop platform and then around if i recall right 2010 2011 Uh, you also had components that could take care of the velocity piece right you had uh, kafka storm all of those come in that could take care of real time data use cases as well right now all of that was great but the biggest challenge there was twofold the first challenge was just setting up these platforms configuring them uh, it was it was so complex and it was such a specialized task that there was just not enough of hadoop admins to go around right and then the second challenge was that even if somehow you magically uh, managed to set up a hadoop environment finding developers to write map reduce code wasn't easy right and and, and the rest of the uh, hadoop ecosystem was just about as complex right then fast forward a few more years i think the cloud data providers did a great job of uh, solving one part of the complexity equation right so you had Uh, managed hadoop instances on aws on azure on google right so you have aws emr come in hd insights come in etc right uh, but then on the other end of the spectrum you also had sql on hadoop platforms come in right so there was this realization that it's not enough to get data into hadoop you also have to be able to consume that data if you are to see any real value and the uh, the business analysts the data analysts all of those folks who were familiar with sql and sql was their go to tool couldn't hook up to hadoop directly without a sql like interface right and that's when you saw platforms like spark impala uh, you had uh, splice machine uh, and a bunch of other platforms that could enable that kind of a functionality and and i think that in some way and this was all 2012 2013 i think that was breakthrough uh, in terms of uh, uh you know companies that had made big data investments but could now start getting some real value out of it because now business analysts could hook up with it run their familiar sql queries get some answers for the business right uh, your familiar bi tools could hook up with it and then start getting some value right so that was around 2012 in in, in my mind that was like the third generation of data platforms right or uh, depending on how you count yeah. and then yeah Sorry, Chris. Go ahead. No, no. So, so you know where where I'm going with this, and I think this is all really valuable setup. So, in in my experience, what what's ended up happening in large 
corporations like like Carrier. And I'm part of what I want to get to for our audience is okay, as a as a data and analytics leader, like how do we manage the strategy for this? So what I've observed is everything that you just said still exists. Right. So what's happened, like there are breakthrough platforms and they are revolutionary, but but almost nobody who had traditional EDW or enterprise warehousing has gotten rid of their high ceremony data warehouses that are used for things like statutory financial reporting. You get into a multinational that's, you know, a portfolio company like yours. And my, my guess is, I don't know, but I'll, I'll ask, you, you must have all of these things, right? They're all trying to coexist at the same time. So, you know, from, a, from an organizational and technology strategy standpoint, this is like what, you know, five years ago, everyone was talking about multimodal IT. This is like multimodal data and analytics, but on steroids. And, and it's almost like the more things come in, the more complicated our lives get. So one, do you kind of agree with that as a problem statement? And then two, like, what are some insights you'd share as you know someone who's got accountability for these platforms? Like, how do you start untangling that and focusing on the things that are valuable without, you know, kind of without putting a stake in the heart of these like very expensive capital intensive ceremonious data warehouses that are still being used for, you know, critical purposes, often with a regulatory reporting component. I know that was like 18 questions all at once, but but that, that was sort of why I wanted to go through that setup because I think this is a really interesting challenge that, you know, it's every large enterprise I've worked in is facing a version of this. And I think you've got, a unique perspective on it, you know, with your deep knowledge of that whole history. Yeah, no, absolutely, Chris. I think that's a fantastic question. Like you said, 18 questions in one. So I'll, I'll <laughs> that's okay. If you know, if you get three or four answers, that'll be great. <laughs> yes, I'll answer them one by one. Just for completing my thought on the platform evolution, I think the the, the final stop on that journey was again what we today call cloud data warehouses, right? So we started with data warehouses and we ended with data warehouses, right? So I think after the whole uh, True. Yeah. SQL on big data platforms, I think there was realization that SQL is not going anywhere. Right? If, you if you have to have mainstream adoption, if you have to have enough skilled resources to be able to work the environment, then SQL has to be an integral part of it, right? And so around 2014, 2015, you had uh, Snowflake and Redshift come into the market, right? Uh, truly cloud data warehouses, like Snowflake brought in the concept of separating storage and compute, which was absolutely revolutionary at that time, right? Being able to scale the component of your warehouse that you need to scale independent of the other uh, was a paradigm shift from how we were thinking about it up until that point, right? And so uh, again, fast forward a few years, if you look at what's the popular design pattern now, it is Hadoop, in some sense has uh, gone away or is not the most popular choice now, right? Most organizations use their uh, object store as the uh, cloud object store as the data lake platform, if you will, right? So if you AWS S3 or Azure object store, right? That's where they bring in all kinds of data, maintain as much history as they need. And then only the processed high value data gets pushed into your, uh, cloud data warehouse. So that could be a Snowflake, that could be a Redshift, that could be a BigQuery, that could be a Azure Synapse Analytics, whatever it is. Right? And so, so that's 
broadly, that's where we are in terms of platform evolution today. Now to your second question, go to any large organization. Uh, most of them would have gone through several cycles of IT evolution. Yeah. Yeah. Regional ITs. And so there was a time when every part of IT was doing their own thing. There was no yeah. single standard across the enterprise. Other companies grew through MA. So, you know, they have a plethora of technologies and plethora of EDWs and data lakes and whatnot. And, and so uh, I, I think the, the prudent way to manage that is to firstly understand that there will always be multiple platforms, right? Uh, and that's part of the multimodal conversation, but that's also more importantly, understanding that there are different businesses within a large company and each of them have differing priorities, right? So if I have to take our example, Carrier has three uh, core businesses, right? We are in the HVAC business, refrigeration business, and fire and security business, right? Each of this are pretty large businesses of their end. They, they could be an independent company. I mean, HVAC yeah. bought a $10 billion business. Refrigeration and fire and security are both between four and $5 billion, right? And so each of them legitimately have their own data and analytics needs which could be very different from the rest of the organization, right? And so my data and analytics strategy is a two-level strategy. There's a BU-level strategy, which is around maintaining a separate BU-level data ecosystem for each of these areas, right? Because the BU-level needs are much broader than the few common enterprise-level needs we have, right? And then the common enterprise needs might be your uh, headquarters finance wanting to look across all of the businesses and uh, things of that nature, right? I mean, there are a few use cases like that as well, right? And so the way we are set up, I've got a SAP HANA ecosystem that supports our HVAC business. I've got a AWS plus Snowflake ecosystem that supports our refrigeration business. I've got an AWS plus Snowflake setup that supports our fire and security business. And then I've got AWS and Snowflake for supporting our enterprise needs, right? So four data ecosystems. And the way I uh, make sure that this doesn't lead to problems is by ensuring that the source of the enterprise data ecosystem is the BU level data warehouses, right? And the, and the advantage of doing that is that now, whatever the BU level leaders are looking at in terms of numbers, those are the exact same numbers that are getting rolled up to the world headquarters, right? So there is no more ticking and tying needed or different kinds of calculations happen or different kinds of rounding happen kind of problems, right? And so uh, the BU level data warehouses, they are responsible for hooking up with all of the ERP systems and other systems at the BU level, right? And creating a single view for the BU. And then they're also responsible for feeding their BU specific information into the enterprise level view. So th this is really, that's awesome. I love what you're saying. And I just want to play it back and make sure I understand correctly. So what I'm hearing you say in a sense is that is that you've created an, an, an IT and a data strategy that that is closely tied to the ownership and governance strategy, right? So I'm the, the business unit leader. Ultimately, I own the numbers that I'm responsible for. And when that gets all rolled up, then, you know, nothing has changed. So there's not the sort of thing that happens, you know, the back and forth that happens in uh, corporate versus line of business disconnects, which is a pretty common problem. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So 
So multiple data platforms are not essentially bad as long as you have a governance model in mind and as, as long as you have a good way of linking numbers they report with the numbers you want to roll up at the corporate level. Yeah, no, that 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 completely makes sense. And I think it's a good insight too, because I've just seen um, you know, without naming names, I've seen too many companies where it's like you sort of have some platform that's a shiny object and you try to make it do too much. And I think what you're saying is just keep it simple, right? You know, you're always going to have multiple platforms. There's no shopping mall where you're going to get everything and you got to figure out how to make that work, which I've had in my mind, um, uh, been in this metaphor for a long time that, that, you know, you could think of architecture at different levels, almost like city planning, right? Like it has some constraints and, you know, if you've got a river running through the city, you're not going to move the river, right? So you kind of work, you know, you work within that set of constraints and then you create services that are meaningful to the citizens who live in, in the city. Um, I, I like, thank you for touching a little bit on the, the carrier lines of business, because I always like in these conversations to get a little bit of a, of an, of an industry flavor. So, you know, maybe in, in kind of our closing segment, um, I understand that within those lines of business, your organization also supports the, the AI agenda and you've got, you know, these different lines of business and you've got your, your strategy, which I think you, you laid out very clearly. So, you know, can you touch on, you know, maybe a couple of use cases or interesting areas where, where you know, you've helped drive business value for AI? And then, you know, it, if it makes sense, um, given your data strategy, what's your experience been in sort of scaling those out of the lab and into an industrial scale? Yeah, no, great question. And then I'm going to, I'm going to give a slightly broader answer to that because I think- Please, the, yeah. The, the question you asked is uh, applicable to not just AI, but also uh, to data and analytics and as it pertains to my strategy, right? So so this, in my mind, there's two legs to my strategy, right? One leg is what's our big picture vision? What do we want to do, right? And, and second is how do we do it, right? The how do we do it is what I described, right? Each BU will have its own yep. BU level data ecosystem. And then we also have an enterprise data ecosystem. And that way we are able to meet each business where it is in terms of its data and analytics journey, and also in terms of their immediate priorities and medium and long-term priorities, right? The, the first aspect is the more direct answer to your immediate question, right? So which is uh, the big picture view of where we want to get to is, is three core pillars, if you will, right? So we have enterprise intelligence as one pillar, right? And enterprise intelligence is all about how do I empower every part of my business with operational and financial health insights, right? Uh, this is everything, everyone from engineering and R&D to sales and marketing to after sales service, right? Uh, and every part of our business from HVAC to fire and security to refrigeration and also our corporate functions, right? So that's the enterprise intelligence piece, pretty straightforward. And then part of it is of course, uh, also giving them the ability to do things like demand forecasting, cash flow forecasting, yeah. et cetera. Right? Yeah, makes sense. The, the second pillar is uh, what I like to call ecosystem intelligence, right? And so uh, how do you look beyond the four walls of your organization and into your larger ecosystem, right? So your supplier on one side and your uh, customer on the other side. For, for carrier, the, the customer often is our distributor, right? And so it's about how do we put in place analytics that 
help our larger ecosystem operate as one single organization and optimize the supply chain end to end right and so couple of interesting examples i want to share is the uh, supplier performance dashboard that we have right and and there uh, the purpose of it is to allow our 1100 plus suppliers to directly understand how they are performing for us in terms of on time deliveries example of interesting program we delivered is called uh, colds or customer order and logistics tracking system right uh, basically what it is is it's a system that allows our customers to directly look at and understand where in the supply chain is their order right so is it at the factory is it at the distribution center is it already on a truck if it's on a truck what exactly is getting shipped to them and so this is this particular initiative was in a sense transformational right before this solution they would have to call up a customer service representative and that person would have to look at uh, eight or 10 application screens make a few phone calls right and look at a erp system a crm system the logistics system uh, you know call a logistics manager or a few other people before they could give that answer right so it would take giving an answer would take anywhere from one day to one week right and from there uh, now our, our customers don't even need to call us they just need to log into this dashboard and they know exactly that that's awesome and and you know going back i i did a lot of work in this area myself and and you know it's you do people do all these studies and and i'd always be like look you know there's a reason when you go to amazon and you go into the inquiry the first thing is called where's my stuff because mainly like when customers are calling what they want to know is where's my stuff so i love that what i understand is it's sort of like you know available to promise self service with details reaching back into the supply lines which is awesome i mean that that's that's really significant from a customer standpoint i i love it right and there are additional uh, insights we want to add to that view like if it's the order still in process we want to share a prediction of by when can they expect to yeah. receive order right yeah. and that's the other thing that as a customer i would like to know right so so that's some interesting work happening in that area the third pillar uh, of our big picture vision is what i like to call product intelligence right a lot of our products are iot enabled and so this is really about streaming in all of that iot data and enabling all kinds of insights from uh you know insights that can power product innovation to insights that can help us optimize our warranty costs to insights that can help our service technicians understand what a what the potential issue is even before they reach the customer side right and so uh, really looking at data like diagnostic data coming from devices energy consumption data coming from devices uh what are the components that are failing most often and so how do we use that to inform our r&d uh, spend and r&d focus etc so that's the product analytics pillar uh so broadly that's how we are looking at building out and rolling out solutions i i really i mean this is this is awesome and i i really like the i mean you you're you're hitting on what i would consider to be you know many of the key components of a you know thoughtful data strategy and thoughtful implementation because you know you're looking at you're looking at cost optimization and and uh, you know ops optimization on the supply side you're looking at what do my customers care about and then you're looking at you know innovation and uh, you know and customer uptime you know and and all of that on the the product intelligence side and um 
you know, that's kind of enabled through the the how of the strategy. So I think that's um, that that's uh, that's awesome. It's a really good it's a really good model. Um, I, I appreciate it very much. Thanks, Chris. Yeah. Um, any uh, sorry, go ahead. The, sorry, I just recall the, the second part of your question was probably how do we take it from a proof of concept stage? To industry. Yeah, right, right, and and you know, I I just always like to talk about this with folks working in in AI and data science because again, you know, my experience is that they're like it's it's pretty easy to create something that you know is like a, a you know a, a point of use like oh I found some value but but then somehow it often seems like it's not much better than doing it on an Excel spreadsheet and that companies really struggle to scale so I'm um, you know I'm just sort of interested are there you know two or three factors that as you've brought these things and the examples you gave are very compelling, like, you know, that were uh, accelerants to scale those out of the lab and, you know, to the industrial level. Yeah, no, and, and so the way we look at that problem, I think you, you hit home on a very common problem across the industry, right? Which is a lot of AI and ML proof of concepts, but very few of them actually yeah. make it to production, right? And, and I think the, most common reasons are because data scientists uh, or the folks working on a proof of concept often underestimate the complexity in getting access to cleansed, validated, transformed data at scale. It's one thing getting a, uh, a small data set in Excel for the purposes of a proof of concept. And it's completely another having to hook up to, say, in our case, we have 150 plus ERP systems across the company. And then we have 900 plus applications across the company, right? And so getting uh, data from across a complex landscape like that at scale uh, is a huge endeavor in itself, right? And I think the number one reason projects fail is lack of recognition that that's the case, right? I I hundred percent agree, and and just to tie back to something else that came up a couple times in the conversation, right? Like this whole you know sort of uh, deep history of data warehousing. That sort of a simple view is that of that is like, well, okay, there are the platforms, but then there's like more and more and more data. So everyone's got a neat idea about, oh, I'm going to take my IoT data and my customer data, but the the complexity of that validated scalable data set is is growing exponentially as we get more data in more places, and we need to solve that you know three V's problem that that you uh, that you uh, alluded to before. Yep, no, totally agree, Chris. And, and 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 then the other common theme in the failure of such projects that I've seen is underestimating the amount of training that a fully industrialized solution will need to be able to perform at a certain level of accuracy at scale, right? So again, same thing, right? A small data set, training it on a small data set and ensuring accuracy versus training on at at enterprise scale and having feedback loops that will keep recalibrating the model at enterprise scale. Those are like two very different things, right? They're very different, and that's a, that's a that's a good point too, because I've seen that as well. And and you know, I mean, of course, what happens in real life, like once you get the the models up and running, you know, they're they're um, I'm speaking in non technical terms. They're kind of more black swans and gray swans that are corner cases in the data sets than people realize when they do it in a you know in the lab and 
that's fine as long as the stakeholders understand and as long as you've got, you know, what what in our ERP days we used to call error handling, right? You've got an exception management process like, hey, I kicked this thing out because it doesn't fit. I don't want to just jam it back into the model. Somebody's got to take a look at that and understand how to tune it. And I think there's there's often a story that that is highly automated, but it's it ain't highly automated, right? Like that takes AI folks and data sciences scientists to go back and kind of look at that and adjudicate all of those corner cases. So I'm with you on those. Um, you know, that the third one that I, I sort of often cite is um, people doing it without a clear business purpose, right? So like, let's go do some AI stuff and it'll be cool, but they don't really have buy-in and they don't know what they're doing. So, you know, like many things, right? It's, you know, there's there's kind of a process problem. There's a, uh, there's a data problem and there's a people problem. Exactly, exactly. I think you nailed it on the head, right? And, and so when they do it without a clear view of why they're doing it, what happens is after the proof of concept, it becomes very difficult to integrate it into the business process and into the business flow that it was meant to be a part of, right? And so adoption, uh, change management, integration, all of those become a challenge, right? And so really my two cents on that whole topic is if you start with an understanding of these three challenges, and if you have the right flying formation or the right team to handle these three challenges as you think about going from POC to industrialization, then my experience is you will see a lot more success than the typical industry AIML project. Yeah, that that's 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 perfect. I agree, and I think that's a that's probably a great uh, great point to close on. Um, this was a terrific conversation. Uh, thank you so much for for uh, for coming for sharing your strategy. I really liked you know, how that discussion evolved from sort of that history, you know, into what's your strategy and then into some very practical applications and, you know, how uh, how leaders can, uh, you know, can leverage your experience and, uh, you know, scale these things up. Thanks, Chris. I mean, some very interesting questions. I can say I absolutely enjoyed this conversation. Terrific conversation, Ben. Thank you so much. I think that, uh, you know, I if I could share with our audience a piece of guidance. We heard a lot of wisdom here on, you know, history, how to build a strategy, and then some uh, some scaling challenges to watch out for. So um, thank you again for joining me today. I uh, hope you have a great rest of the day. And for our audience, um, we have some additional interviews at, uh, at cdomagazine.tech, although I have to say this was one of my favorites. Thank you, Chris. <laughs>